you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. As I try to say as often as I can to remind us that the people are the church as we come together in spaces like these Sunday after Sunday. Um, James and I are going to start hiding a Wonka's golden ticket on the front row here um, at some point and just see if it ever gets found. Um, My name is Jamie, if we haven't met yet. I'm one of the pastors of our church. Uh, The guy who most Sundays gets to open up the scriptures and preach God's word. And uh, we're surely gonna do that this morning. Uh, We, about, I guess a month ago, four to six weeks ago, uh, we were talking about establishing a date on the calendar for baptisms. We were uh, meeting with baptism candidates and uh, we squared away August 7th this morning as the date to move forward with that. And in the aftermath of that, We've been in, for those of you who don't know, we've been in Luke's gospel account for about a year and a half now, and uh, the calendar had already been set for the entirety of uh, this summer, finishing out this book of the Bible as we're very close now, and just out of curiosity, I decided to look and see, well, where are we going to be on August 7th? Hadn't even checked that out to um, explore where we might be in the scriptures, and lo and behold, the two sections entitled Jesus is Buried and the Resurrection, um, which is where we're going to sit this morning, and then go out uh, on the back lawn and see a symbol of burial and resurrection. How cool is that? And so I just invite you to open up your Bible now for the time being to uh, Luke chapter 23. Uh, We'll be in verse 50. We'll start there. We'll work our way through the first 12 verses of chapter 24 before all said and done. We've got a couple more weeks to go. before we're completely finished up with the book of Luke. It's been an incredible journey so far. Um, This morning's passage, unique in its own right. And so let me pray for us and we'll, we'll get to work. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son that he might live the life that none of us could ever live righteous, perfect, sinless life on our behalf, that he might carry that record to the cross. He might die on behalf of sinners. We might have hope on the other side of his death, an empty tomb, the declaration that, Father, you received the payment for sin in full. That when Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. Holy Spirit, thank you for applying that work of redemption to our hearts, that we might know the hope of salvation, rescue, forgiveness, redemption. Everything that we'll see a symbol of as we step out onto that back lawn just a few minutes from now. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would move in our hearts and power, stir us, awaken us from our slumber, Help us to see the magnitude, the wonder, the gravitas of what you have accomplished for us, Lord Jesus. What you continue to accomplish for us, what you will accomplish for us. The past tense, present tense, and future tense promises that are ours in you. The tomb is empty. Help us to celebrate that and and feel the fullness of the weight of what that means this morning as we sit with your word in front of us. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, our Savior, I pray. Amen. So last week, we stood at the the foot of the cross and beheld the crucified Jesus, the 
the sinless son of God, bearing the judgment of God on behalf of sinners under the darkened skies of Jerusalem. From eternity past, the father's beloved. In that moment, the father's forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness sweeping over Jerusalem that day, a sign of God's judgment falling on Jesus uh, on behalf of sinners like you and me. We sing it often, our church does at least, in our place condemned he stood, sealing our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. When we fix our eyes on the crucified Jesus, we, we see the hope of salvation, the hope that's ours in Jesus bearing the utter darkness of our judgment, uh, of the judgment that was ours to bear, I should say. More than that, as we saw last week, making a way for us to enter into the very presence of God. That very day, the curtain of the temple separating sinners from God torn in two. The, the glorious and wondrous hope of the gospel made visible. Jesus, the way back into God's presence. That, that's the kind of imagery that we sat with last Sunday, which had something of the feel of a Good Friday service. Leaving us with the space of not a few days leading up to Easter Sunday, but a full week for the heaviness of that moment to, to settle on us. What it must have been like for Jesus' earliest disciples who didn't get the luxury of immediately running to the empty tomb. As we pick up this morning's passage, Jesus has just breathed his last breath, crying out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The events of his death stirring the heart of a Roman centurion, having seen it all with his own eyes, compelling the man not only to express Jesus' innocence in agreement with, with Pilate, with Herod, and with the thief on the cross, but to declare, according to Matthew and Mark's accounts, truly this was the Son of God. The confessional words of not only a Gentile, but a man who actively participated in Jesus' crucifixion. Think about that. A reminder that if there's hope for this centurion who presided over the darkest act in all of human history, then there's hope for you and me. No matter what you bring into this place this morning. If you pick up where we left off last week, chapter 23, verse 50, Luke tells us, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. And he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. We don't, we don't know much about Joseph of Arimathea aside from that which the authors of the gospel accounts provide us. Described as a good and righteous man who's looking for the kingdom of God. Luke's way of telling us that Joseph was a follower of Jesus, which Matthew and John declare a little more explicitly in their gospel accounts. A member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph was, the supreme court on religious matters for the Jewish people. Yet having refused to consent to the decision of the council, along with the outworking of that decision in the crucifixion of Jesus, this man, Luke tells us, verse 52, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Not only was Joseph of Arimathea a good and righteous man who was looking for the kingdom of God, but he was a wealthy man with enough means to purchase a new tomb for he and his family in a garden near the place of Jesus' crucifixion. Here, asking Pilate for Jesus' body that he might provide Jesus with a proper burial. In what would become one of the many fulfillments of ancient prophecy. We've seen a lot of those over the last few Sundays. 
In this case, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, here it is, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Not only a a sacrificial act on Joseph's part in asking Pilate for Jesus' body, but to a courageous one. John's gospel account declaring that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, yes and amen, but secretly for fear of the Jews. John chapter 19, verse 38. Here, making in some sense a public profession of faith in identifying himself before Pontius Pilate with this Jesus of Nazareth. In the eyes of many, a convicted criminal, just like the two thieves between whom he had died. To which Pilate, according to Mark's gospel account, reacts with surprise. Mark chapter 15, verse 44, to hear that Jesus should have already died, prompting him to to summon the centurion to ask if Jesus was in fact already dead. The centurion responding with an emphatic yes at a time and place in history when executioners made sure that the death row criminals under their watch had without question died lest one of those criminals should escape, in which case the executioner, having declared him dead when he wasn't truly, would be put to death himself. Meaning that Jesus didn't just pass out as some liberal theologians have argued. There's a lot of apologetics in this morning's passage, defense of the Christian faith. That Jesus died that day, a body in need of a burial, prompting Pilate upon word that Jesus had, in fact, died to respond favorably, we're told, and giving Joseph permission to take Jesus' body down from the cross. What had to be an incredibly sobering moment. Put yourself there. The removal of the nails. With the nails, the crown of thorns. The transporting of Jesus' lacerated body. Filled with life and breath just hours earlier. The bounding of the body in linen cloths with spices, as was a burial custom of the Jews. Consider this. Jesus, having once been enshrouded in the womb of Mary, where no one had ever yet rested, now enshrouded in burial linens in a gifted tomb where no one had ever yet rested. You can't make this stuff up. Verse 54 goes on to tell us, It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Jesus died on the day of preparation, Luke tells us. The day leading up to the Sabbath. The day of the week when people would make their plans accordingly, knowing that work would soon be forbidden. Meaning that there was something of a hurriedness about it all. The women here, followers of Jesus, with little time to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Able to, to get a few things in order before the Sabbath. Forced to return to the tomb after the Sabbath in order to faithfully see things through. The providence of God in ensuring that the women would later return and find the tomb empty. In the meantime, having seen the tomb and how Jesus' body was laid, verse 55 Establishing the the implausibility that they later went to the wrong tomb. In fact, not only was the body of Jesus in the place of his burial witnessed by many that very day, 
But two, Jesus' burial tomb would have been incredibly easy to find. Having been buried in the tomb of a wealthy, prominent, respected member of the community. Had Jesus not really risen from death, it would have been easy to find the tomb, open it up, present Jesus' dead body as evidence. In addition, according to Matthew's gospel account, the Pharisees went to great lengths to make sure that the tomb of Jesus was secure. Armed men stationed outside the tomb for three days to make sure that Jesus' disciples didn't attempt to steal the body. The tomb sealed with a heavy stone. And yet, the last chapter of Luke's gospel account begins with these words. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Early dawn, first day of the week, Sunday morning. The day of the week when the early church would go on to begin worshiping as we're doing this very morning. Even though devout Jews had worshiped on Saturdays for thousands of years. One of the the many examples of circumstantial evidence in arguing for the historicity of the resurrection. The Sabbath, it was sacred to devout Jews. They wouldn't have dared to change the day of corporate worship unless there was a good reason to do such a thing. And there was. The early church started worshiping on Sunday in honor and memory of Jesus' Sunday resurrection from the dead. The first day of the week, the women returning at dawn's first light with the spices that they had prepared for Jesus' body. According to Mark's account, concerned as they made the journey as to how they would move the stone away, only to find the stone rolled away upon arriving, the body of the Lord Jesus nowhere to be found. Their hearts overwhelmed with confusion and bewilderment. They themselves wondering, according to to John's account, whether Jesus' body had been stolen. We'll get there next week, the many eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus and how that's absurd as as a theory in and of itself, but we'll hold off for a week on that one. There's enough evidence elsewhere in this passage to stand on its own. Verse 4 tells us, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, these men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? You may recall that Luke's gospel account began with the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary the miracle of the incarnation and virgin birth. Here, two angels announcing again to women yet another greatest of miracles, the miracle of the resurrection. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Just as Jesus had prophesied would come to to pass recorded multiple times throughout Luke's gospel account. You have chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them, Jesus did, to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and here it is, and on the third day be raised. 
Or how about Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33? And taking the 12, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. Here it is. And on the third day, he will rise. Though having heard these words, notice that not one of Jesus' apostles is at the tomb. And those who are at the tomb have burial spices in hand. Not one, neither absent nor present, is expecting a resurrection. And these, the closest of Jesus' followers. It's the kind of detail that most people would, would leave out if they were trying to create a really good myth. As it paints Jesus' earliest disciples in an unbelieving light. The inclusion of such a detail on Luke's part further establishing the authenticity of the story. It goes on in verse 8. And they remembered Jesus' words. And returning from the tomb, they, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And that was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, to the apostles, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. For Luke to include the eyewitness account of women is not an insignificant detail. I mean, we're talking about a time and place in human history when women were marginalized, their testimony not considered to be very credible. If Luke were making this story up, he, he wouldn't have included women as eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. The eyewitness account of women lending credence again to the historical accuracy of the event while also communicating the beauty of a God who declares men and women to be of equal dignity and worth. That goes all the way back to the very first chapter of the Bible. More than that, notice that Luke doesn't speak in general terms, but rather includes a list of women by name, inviting the, the earliest of audiences of this letter to investigate these claims. Several of these women, they would have been alive at the time. Women like Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons, Seven demons, chapter 8, verse 2. And Joanna, the wife of Herod's household manager. I mean, these are prominent women with powerful stories. Having experienced the healing and forgiveness of Jesus. Before anyone else, having seen the stone rolled away, the tomb empty. Here bringing the, the wondrous news of the risen Jesus to the eleven. Judas, the betrayer, no longer counted among the apostles. The women met with skepticism, Luke tells us. Their message in the original language believed to be, quote-unquote, silly talk. Folly. Nonsense. Again, another of the many evidences of the authenticity of this story. is These are the, the very men who would go on to give their lives for Jesus. These, in many of our minds, these are the giants on whose shoulders we stand. Here, unbelieving, soon to be so utterly and unchangeably convinced, of which we get the tiniest of glimpses in the final verse of this morning's passage. 
Verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Most of us will never know anything close to the kind of persecution and suffering that Jesus' earliest disciples would go on to experience. Soon to be mocked, beaten, imprisoned, put to death in torturous ways in proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the grave. That was their message. Crucifixion of Philip by the emperor Domitian. The stoning of Stephen in the street at Passover in the spring following Jesus' crucifixion. The hanging of Luke, the very author of this book of the Bible from an olive tree in Greece. The upside-down crucifixion of Peter, the very same Peter of verse 12, by the emperor Nero while preaching the gospel in Rome. These, just a few of the accounts, according to tradition, what happened to many of Jesus' earliest disciples. So that for the resurrection of Jesus to be simply some hoax, it would mean that a multitude of people carried the lie to their blood-soaked graves. Now, these men were sure of what they had witnessed. Utterly and unchangeably convinced, even unto death, Peter himself, he would go on to declare in his famous sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God, Peter says, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter, too, would go on to write, should make its way into the canon of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Some people think it would be easier to trust in Jesus if they could have seen the empty tomb for themselves. And yet, this morning's passage tells us that they themselves who beheld the empty tomb struggled to believe at first. Reminded by the angels, verses 6 and 7, in the midst of their unbelief of what Jesus had said. When they did believe, it was because they trusted the same words of Jesus that you and I have this morning. The same words that Luke included in his writing that we might have certainty. So that I would ask this morning, like Peter, have you investigated the empty tomb? More than that, do you believe Jesus' words? The Apostle Paul would go on to write in a very famous passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Paul says, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We Christians. 
If Jesus has not been raised, the preaching of the gospel is an exercise in futility. The gathering of the church, week in and week out, perhaps one of the silliest Sunday hobbies that the world has ever known. If Jesus has not been raised, then our faith is worthless. Counted among the millions upon millions of Kool-Aid drinkers who have placed their faith in a lie. If Jesus has not been raised, we're all blasphemers and testifying as true about God things that are not true about God. If Jesus has not been raised, Paul says, we're all lost in our sins, believing we've been set free, though still under sin's curse. If Jesus has not been raised, then our believing loved ones who have passed away are not in his presence. Our comfort in believing so nothing more than a false hope. If Jesus has not been raised, then you and I, we Christians in this gathering this morning, are of all people most to be pitied, Paul says, having devoted our lives and entrusted our destiny to something imagined. If Jesus has not been raised, as I've said before, then the Jenga game is over. Christianity crumbles to the ground. Let us eat, drink, eat and drink, Paul says in that very same chapter, for tomorrow we die. What Luke declares in this morning's passage is this. Christian, you are no fool. You are no fool. That Jesus truly did live the life that we could never live. A perfect, righteous, sinless life. Jesus truly did die the death that we deserve to die. His body broken and his blood shed to make atonement for our sins. Jesus truly did rise from the dead. The grave unable to hold his body down. Jesus Christ, the glorious, eternal, risen Son of God. For some, perhaps today is the day of salvation. The day the great winds of God's mercy blow your way. I invite you to run to the empty tomb. To see the penalty for your sin paid in full. To repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in him. He promises to receive everyone who comes to him. He promises to forgive all who trust in him. And for we who are in Christ, this morning is a reminder. We don't just celebrate it on Easter Sunday. We as a church celebrate it each and every week that we gather. But again, an explicit reminder as we sit with the passage on the resurrection that our hope is not in a dead Jesus, but rather a risen, exalted, living Jesus so that the Apostle Paul could have just as easily written 1 Corinthians this way. Because Jesus has been raised, the preaching of the gospel is not an exercise in futility. The gathering of the church, not a silly Sunday hobby, but an act of worship and a means of grace. Because Jesus has been raised, our faith is not in vain. The object of our faith, alive and reigning today. Because Jesus has been raised, we're no longer dead in our trespasses. Born again, as Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus has been raised, all who have died in him are happy in him. Absent from the body, as Paul says, present with the risen Lord. Because Jesus has been raised, we Christians are of all people least to be pitied having devoted our lives and entrusted our destiny to the realest of realities and truest of truths.